What's going on? Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. It is heard live every day from noon to three on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content like invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with all the links, become a patron. Go to thepetecalendarshow.com. Make sure you hit the subscribe button. Get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And again, thank you so much for your support. All right. So last night, apparently... On the way back from Wilson, North Carolina, uh, home of the famous volleyball, I believe, from that uh, movie with um, Forrest Gump, that guy. The Well, it's so hard because he's the same character in every – I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I, <laughs> I kid Tom Hanks. No, it's a running joke that I say Tom Hanks has he, – he doesn't have any range. He plays the same character all the time. Um, it's just a joke. It's just a joke. I mean, he's no Harvey Keitel or Leonardo DiCaprio with the range there. But all right. Um, anyway, so on the way back from Wilson, North Carolina, the Speaker of the House, Tim Moore, and Representative David Willis from Union County, they were uh, riding in the Speaker's, I guess, official state vehicle, and they were rammed from behind. While driving down the road, they had they have a driver who I believe is a highway patrolman, works for highway patrol. Uh, you know, like they have like a security detail assigned to some of the uh, the legislative leaders and like the governor as well. And they're driving down the road, and all of a sudden, a car comes up behind them and rams the back of their car, their SUV, and then rams it again, and then rams it for a third time. And then it drives off. The uh, vehicle was eventually stopped. Uh, The driver arrested. The motivations remain unclear, according to Carolina Journal. Everyone is fine. Nobody was uh, seriously injured. Uh, They are still investigating the motive, according to Demi Dowdy, who is the uh, spokesperson for uh, Tim Moore. They do not believe that uh, Representative Willis or... Tim Moore, the speaker, were specifically targeted. However, I would point out that legislative leaders have tags, right? The legislators have tags. I've seen them on representatives' cars. Now, I did not know whether or not this vehicle was one of the official vehicles that would have that tag for the Speaker of the House, but I was told by a lawmaker this morning that the vehicle does indeed have the tag. So was it a matter of the guy coming up behind being blitzed out of his mind and just ran the car for some reasons that are only known to him at this point? Don't know. Or uh, if we would like to jump to the, uh, you know, the, the partisan motivated uh, explanations without any information as seems to be the norm now, particularly when something bad happens to a democratic lawmaker, um, is this an example of stochastic terrorism? Are we going to get are we going to get comments from it? Uh, you know, from all of the Democratic lawmakers, or you know, whether they bear any responsibility for this attack on the Speaker of the House of North Carolina? You know, with the hot rhetoric that's been going on, the driver was charged with DWI, named James Matthew Brogdon of Goldsboro. Um, was arrested and charged with 
driving while impaired, resisting a public officer, injury to personal property. Um, Brogdon was going through the booking process uh, this morning. Circumstances are still under investigation. And according to the Carolina Journal, uh, Governor Roy Cooper uh, tweeted this morning that he had talked with Speaker Moore. Um, And I think uh, Cooper's. Well, he probably if if passed is any indication, then I would I would I would believe that Cooper would probably said something to the effect of, you know, if we expand Medicaid, uh, then this kind of stuff won't ever happen, because that's sort of like his answer to like virtually every problem in the state. It's just expand Medicaid. So that's probably what he, he talked to him about. I would. Um, my good friend Ray Cooper on the Twitter machine, it's a Pete tweet, says, I have not seen a name released for the driver who rammed Tim Moore yet. I also haven't seen any alibi for Beth Wood for the time in question. We can only go where the facts lead us. I completely agree, Ray. Um, I First thing I thought was, how many satellite offices does former Attorney General um, and uh, big-time Democrat uh, lawyer guy uh, Rufus Edmiston, how many satellite offices does that law firm have? What, does he have one in Wilson, and were they holding a Christmas party that Beth Wood attended? That's, these are the questions that I have right out of the gate. Also, maybe she was driving yet another state vehicle, Right. We don't know. We got to check it out. No, they actually have they, they've got a guy in custody. It's not the auditor, Beth Wood, who is also refusing to talk to media about any of it because she says all the media is rigged against her or something. Yeah, I, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, all right. So let's get to some more uh, state legislative stuff. So uh, state legislative leaders. Uh, want to now intervene in a federal lawsuit regarding the abortion pills. We'll give you details on that in a moment. Alrighty, so legislative leaders have uh, filed a federal lawsuit challenging North Carolina's restrictions on abortion pills. Lawmakers took that step after North Carolina Attorney General Josh Stein refused to do his job yet again. He says he's not going to defend the state law in the case because... He's running for governor and he's taken a very pro-abortion stance and this would be at odds with that stance and it's not going to look good for him to do that. And I mean, he didn't say any of these things, of course, but um, like that's what's going on, right? This is not, you're not going, Josh Stein has a history as did Roy Cooper, my good friend, Ray. Um, They both have a history of not defending laws that they don't agree with, even though it's their job. Which, if you don't want to defend laws, then don't run for the job defending laws. The suit is Bryant versus Stein, which, once again, here you have another example of uh, friendly plaintiffs suing specific targets that are friendly to the plaintiffs. They are simpatico on these uh, on these ideologies, on these on these issues. So they will go and they will sue. It's the same thing as, you know, venue shopping, court shopping, where you try to find a district uh, or a specific judge, and you try to find people that will be most beneficial when when ruling to your side of the case, right? So the suit is Bryant v. Stein. It was filed back in January. It targeted the attorney general, the Orange Chatham County DA, 
the North Carolina Secretary of Health and Human Services, as well as members of the North Carolina State Medical Board. The complaint did not name legislative leaders, even though the General Assembly approved the law. Again, this is by design. You don't sue the General Assembly, the legislature. You don't sue them because they'll actually want to defend it, right? They're going to want to defend the law that they passed, so you sue Stein, so he will enter into a collusive agreement with you. He will not file an appeal. He will not defend the case. You sue him, you win at the lower court where you've judge shopped, and hey, look at that, we win. Well, now the legislature is like, okay, hang on a second, pump the brakes. We are going to, once again, intervene. The legislative leaders have an interest in upholding the validity of state statutes aimed at protecting unborn life, promoting maternal health and safety, and regulating the medical profession. That, according to the motion from the lawyers of the legislature, the North Carolina law designates the legislative leaders as agents of the state for the purpose of intervening to defend these statutes. By the way, this is a fairly recent law that the legislative leaders had to adopt because my good friend Ray Cooper, as attorney general, would not do his job. And Josh Stein will not do his job. But he wants the other job now as governor, right? They, it, I don't know what duties he's not going to fulfill as governor. Who We can only guess. But the lawmakers actually had to pass a law to give themselves the ability to intervene when the people whose job it is to defend laws refuse to do their jobs. Routine application of recent Supreme Court precedent should make this a fairly simple issue, they say. Uh, the action seeks to undermine... Oh, wait, hang on a second. This is... Right, yeah. It seeks to undermine the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs uh, v. Jackson Women's Health Organization by usurping the authority of the people of North Carolina acting through their elected representatives to reasonably regulate abortion in their state. It does so by challenging several common sense health and safety laws that have been on the books for years. Based on a new and incorrect argument that the FDA's decision to permit chemical abortion drugs to be marketed under certain conditions means that states cannot enact their own laws regulating the safety of chemical abortion for their citizens. What is this about? It's about the drugs that you can get to terminate a pregnancy. You know, most of the uh, most abortions are not surgical anymore. They're they're medication based. You get like this these uh, this two um, two pill cocktail. You take one, and then like a day or two later, you take the other one, and that that terminates the pregnancy. It kills the the child in the womb. The motion cites the U.S. Supreme Court's 2022 ruling in Berger versus the NAACP where they said lawmakers, yes, could in fact intervene in a federal lawsuit challenging uh, the state's voter ID. That came from the U.S. Supreme Court. That It went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Whether or not the lawmakers could intervene in a case when an attorney general refuses to do their job. And that was over the voter ID. Which you'll recall, it's been a decade. It's been a decade since voter ID was initially passed, and then other versions passed, including a constitutional amendment that we, the people, voted on to implement. 
And despite all of that, despite the obvious will of the people, despite the democracy in action, we still get the blocking from the so-called defenders of democracy. They say the attorney general, This oh, sorry, this is a quote from uh, House Speaker Tim Moore and State Senate Leader Phil Berger. They said the attorney general has made it abundantly clear that when faced with the opportunity to uphold his oath or advance his political career, he will pick his career every time. Since Attorney General Stein won't do the job he was elected to do, legislative leaders will intervene in this case to defend our state's pro-life laws. Um, The case was brought by a UNC health doctor, um, Dr. Amy Bryant, who also took part in a 2016 lawsuit that challenged other North Carolina abortion laws, including the ban on most abortions after 20 weeks. The loss, that lawsuit proved successful for the pro-abort crowd. Uh, U.S. District Judge William Osteen vacated and dissolved his injunction against North Carolina's abortion law in August 2022. Osteen cited the Dobbs ruling in his decision. Now, you'll recall that was another example of Josh Stein refusing to accelerate or refusing to do his job because he refused to petition the court to drop that suit. Because it was wiped away. When the Dobbs decision came down, the lawsuit became moot. And so the lawmakers told the attorney general, you need to petition the court to drop the case because it doesn't because it's moot. It doesn't matter anymore. The U.S. Supreme Court wiped away the Roe v. Wade stuff and KCV Planned Parenthood. And he refused to do that. The judge eventually did. did vacate and dissolve that. He is the same judge, by the way, that's overseeing this case. Next, we've got Roy Cooper banding together with uh, Democrat governors in 19 other states to launch a network intended to strengthen abortion access in the wake of the uh, Dobbs decision. Organizers, led by California Governor Gavin Newsom, described the Reproductive Freedom Alliance as a way for governors and their staffs to share best practices and affirm abortion rights for, you know, 170 million Americans who live in their uh, footprint under their rule (laughs) in these states, even though they admit they really can't do anything (laughs) because they're just governors and the laws get passed by the legislature. I know it's an inconvenient fact. According to the AP, Report, Democratic governors form alliance on abortion rights. Now, they've named this thing. they got 20 states. Just been thinking about this. they got 20 states. They've launched a network, and they're calling it the Reproductive Freedom Alliance, or the RFA. And I don't know if this was intentional or not, but that's, that, that's RFA is it's very similar to the RIFRA. Remember that, the... Restoration Freedom Religion Act, right? That, And they didn't like the RIFRA. People didn't like RIFRA. I mean, they liked it at first, and then, like, fast forward a couple decades, and then all of a sudden it got very, very bad. So I don't know. I think you would want some separation on the branding. So while I was reading through this AP story, I noted a couple of words that kind of popped out at me, you know, things that they were talking about um, and... 
Yeah, I don't know. They're just It seems like in their statements, maybe we could find a better way to brand this organization just by going by their own words. And so, uh, so I, I just ran this little exercise. See if you see what you think. All right, you got New Mexico Governor Michelle Luan Grisham, and uh, she unvi- she did an interview ahead of the big announcement this week, and she says, "quote This is leveraging our strengths to have more of a national voice." So leveraging our strengths. Okay, all right, leveraging strengths. Uh, They say they're going to share model statutory language and executive orders protecting abortion access, ways to protect abortion providers from prosecution, strategies to maximize federal financing um, for abortion methods like birth control, uh, support for manufacturers of abortion medication and contraceptives. I mean, not like we're going to make those over the counter or anything. Don't get me wrong. I mean, that I mean, that would totally harm the abortion industry. So we can't do that. But. Uh, you know, but some other things, I guess. And then the the governor of New Mexico noted that the launch comes as a federal court in Texas considers a challenge to the nationwide availability of medication abortions, which now account for the majority of abortions. Gavin Newsom, governor of California, he called the effort a moral obligation, a moral obligation, moral obligation. All right, they talk about health care, you know, reproductive health. So I'm going to say this. I got leveraging, got moral obligation, and I got health. Okay. And it's at a local level. It's going to be for like these centers and stuff. These They're in the community. So it's a local, so we want to probably throw that in there too. All right, just spitballing here. All right, so I've – so just, just off the top of my head here, I got uh, – I got moral obligation, leveraging opportunities for community health. How about that? Moral obligation, leveraging opportunities for community health. I think that might be a good name. I mean, you would acronym that thing. M-O-L-O-C-H. I think that works. It's easy to say, right? Taps into the historical roots and all about what it is you're trying to do. M-O-L-O-C-H. Moral obligation, leveraging opportunities for community health. And it's nebulous enough where nobody really knows what you're talking about, what's really happening. That's always kind of a key here in this debate. You can't can't ever describe any of the procedures or what's occurring or who's getting it or anything like that. Um, I think this is the way forward, guys. You can have it. Take the name. M-O-L-O-C-H. Moloch. Yeah, it definitely has a ring to it. Right, really captures the essence. 22 Democrat-run states have weighed in on the Texas challenge to medical abortions. It's filed by many of the same litigant states that worked together to overturn the 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling. A similar contingent of Republican-led states has filed briefs in the Texas case, urging a judge to reverse a decades-old approval by the FDA of the medical abortions. Um. By the way, a federal judge this week also uh, refused to set an accelerated trial schedule for that lawsuit. Um, U.S. District Judge Matthew Kazmarek in Amarillo rejected the group's request to skip a hearing. This was brought by the states that are trying to uh, get rid of the the FDA approval of the abortion pill Mifepristone, 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 whatever. 
uh, anti-abortion groups, including the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, brought the case against the U.S. FDA last November. And they claim the agency used an improper process to approve the drug back in 2000. And it did not adequately consider its safety for minors. Mifepristone is approved for medication abortion in the first 10 weeks of pregnancy in combination with another drug, misoprostol. Misoprostol. Stupid drug names. Medication abortion accounts for more than half of U.S. abortions. Um, The government has countered that the drug's approval was fully supported by evidence and that the challenge, uh, now 22 years after the FDA approved it, comes much too late. Major medical organizations, including the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, last week weighed in on the side of the government saying mifepristone, whatever, has been, quote, thoroughly studied and is conclusively safe, except for the baby. Josh Stein, not going to defend this. He won't defend North Carolina restrictions on dispensing abortion pills that are being challenged in the lawsuit. The decision means Republican legislative leaders who want to keep the restrictions are going to have to uh, formally intervene. They have now done so. North Carolina law requires the pill be dispensed in person after a 72-hour waiting period and only after patients receive state-mandated counseling and, in some cases, an ultrasound, which is completely outrageous, obviously, because we cannot have people making informed consent. I mean, that's just ridiculous. How dare you tell people all of the potential uh, complications or implications and ramifications of their decision, um, it's best to keep them ignorant of all of these things so as to best make uh, the medical decision that uh, Democrat donors want them to make. I mean, like, really? Are we asking too much here? I think we are, right? I think we are asking too much. People do not need to know all of the downsides that might be attendant to, uh, to some of these decisions. I mean, has the trans movement taught us nothing, right? Really, people, has it taught us nothing? We need to be ignorant of long-term ramifications in order to make the best medical decisions that Democrat donors want us to make. Okay, glad we, uh, glad we got that. Oh, I also I almost forgot. Josh Stein, big win, big win for uh, Attorney General Stein. He's allowed to lie. He is allowed to lie uh, about his uh, political opponents as a good officer of the court. Uh, the attorney general, lawyer guy, is is it's totally fine for him to make up anything he wants on the campaign trail. So expect lots of lying in the gubernatorial run. Oh, it's going to be a fantastic race, don't you think? I got a, uh, a piece here by Andrew Dunn, who actually takes a look at why Josh Stein is a weak candidate for governor. Andrew Dunn, our pal over at Longleaf Politics, uh, it's a Substack. it's his newsletter. He was a longtime reporter. He's also a comms guy for former Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest. Um, he did a write-up the other day on six reasons Josh Stein is a weak candidate for governor. After he put out his video announcing his uh, candidacy for governor, He revealed the two-step approach that will consume the next 21 months of his life. Trash Mark Robinson and try to appear normal. (laughs) Stein jumped into the race with a highly unusual campaign video for what's likely to be a highly unusual race. 
His message makes a powerful argument for his candidacy, but it also reveals his many significant weaknesses. It also gives significant airtime to somebody who hasn't even formally announced his candidacy. Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson. It's rare for a gubernatorial candidate to announce this early. It's virtually unheard of to open with a direct assault on a political rival. And should this matchup come to pass, it could very well turn into the kind of bruising, nasty campaign that will be studied and analyzed in history classes half a century from now. So first, he clumsily compares Robinson, the first black lieutenant governor of North Carolina, to segregationist arsonists that firebombed his dad's law firm uh, back in the, what, 60s, or 1971, rather, when Josh Stein was four years old. Just like current Governor Roy Cooper and former Governor Mike Easley, Stein is a former elected official and sitting attorney general running for governor. The AG position lends the veneer of being tough on crime, which Democrats have to have in order to be elected statewide. It also helps convey a sense of competence and stability, something that the North Carolina electorate values in its choices for governor. Our state is much more willing to send somebody who rocks the boat to the U.S. Senate than to the executive mansion. Stein also has a powerful fundraising operation behind him that's been cultivated over decades by former Governor Jim Hunt and current Governor Roy Cooper. And Stein has the endorsement of Jim Hunt already. The media is going to line up behind him as well. I mean, assuming he gets to the primary, of course. But there are six areas where he's vulnerable, according to Andrew Dunn. So, number one, the main reason he's entering the race right now so early is that he has virtually no grassroots support. His entry now might help freeze out potential challengers. But this is a double-edged sword for him because it's hard to maintain momentum for two years. Also... He has repeatedly refused to enforce state law. The 20-week abortion issue I just went over. Um, He refused to defend a law that prevented convicted felons from voting. He worked to undermine the voter ID constitutional provision. Um, He colluded with liberal activists to change election law in 2020. Four terms he served in the state Senate. He's got one of the most liberal voting records in that body. He voted against tax cuts against charter schools, against voter ID, against Second Amendment rights, against school resource officers and discipline in schools, and in favor of taxpayer-funded abortion to the point of birth. This is a marked difference between him and, say, Governor Hunt, whose policy positions were virtually indistinguishable from modern Republicans. It's no surprise that opponents would paint a Democratic candidate as too liberal for the state, but Stein is particularly vulnerable to this line of attack. Successful Democrats, when running statewide, they have deep roots in North Carolina, rural areas, and that usually helps insulate them from these types of attacks that you're too left-wing. Cooper and Easley, former Governor Mike Easley, right, they're both from Nash County. Governor Bev Perdue is from New Bern. Jim Hunt is from Wilson. Most of them were homegrown UNC or NC State grads as well. But Stein, he was raised in Chapel Hill, right? Maybe the most notoriously liberal city in the state, except for maybe Asheville. They call it the People's Republic of Chapel Hill for a reason. He earned degrees from Ivy League, Dartmouth, and Harvard. He then served as the campaign manager for John Edwards when he ran for U.S. Senate. 
He is not an old school centrist Democrat. And where Stein is weak, Robinson is strong. Because the flip side of a candidate being polished and disciplined is the perception that they are not authentic. And whatever you think about Mark Robinson, he comes across as authentic. Right? There is there is no doubt he believes what he says uh, when he says it, right? The things he is saying, he believes, and he doesn't care. He's not a polished politician. Robinson rose from a furniture factory worker with a Facebook page to lieutenant governor by virtue of his fiery, impassioned speeches, namely on the Second Amendment rights and social issues. He's not a career politician, and that's what Stein lacks. He's got the liberal voting record. And he's got an inauthenticity. Now, Robinson's got problems himself. And um, Andrew Dunn goes over some of those as well. You can read it at his uh, uh, Substack, his newsletter, longleafpolitics.substack.com. It's a good read. It's very lengthy. I gave you the high points. But that's where you can find it.